APTA is providing regular updates and guidance on COVID-19. On April 30th, we recorded a video dialogue with Hadia Guerrero, Jonathan Greenwood, Carrie Hall, and Leslie Wolke on the topic of outpatient physical therapy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Here's that discussion. Good afternoon and welcome to today's conversation on outpatient physical therapy during the COVID-19 pandemic, a clinical, a clinician discussion. We are super excited to have our speakers this afternoon to discuss not only the impact of COVID-19 on the outpatient services provided by physical therapists and physical therapy assistants, but how they have survived and served their constituents in light of the pandemic and the implemented, um, I would say services as well as the precautions that are and guidelines that have been imposed on the nation at large. And so I'm first going to start by introducing our speakers. I'll start with Jonathan Greenwood, who's a board certified pediatric clinical specialist and director of the physical therapy and occupational therapy services at Boston Children's Hospital in Massachusetts. He's also certified in early intervention specialty, specialty and in neurodevelopmental treatment. Carrie Hall is a physical therapist and president and CEO of Movement Systems Physical Therapy in Seattle, Washington. She has authored a textbook, Therapeutic Exercise, Moving Towards Function, served as a faculty member at three major universities and presented on the movement system. And we have Leslie J. Waltke. She is a physical therapist with a clinical mastery in oncology rehabilitation, specializing in musculoskeletal, cardiopulmonary, and functional deficits related to cancer. She is the cancer rehabilitation coordinator for Advocate Aurora Health in Wisconsin, and is the founder of the Waltke Cancer Rehabilitation Academy, a consultancy that educates and builds powerhouse cancer rehab programs around the world. And Leslie, you'll have to correct me if I pronounced the Waltke incorrectly. You nailed it. <laughs> awesome. Nailed it. Good work. So I'm going to start with... Um, Carrie, and then I'll ask you to go next, Leslie and Jonathan. And I'd like each of you to take two to four minutes just to tell us a little bit about your practices, the patients that you serve, as well as how COVID has impacted your area, um, where the state and city that you're in, as well as your practice itself. Carrie? Okay. Um, well, I uh, uh, own Movement Systems Physical Therapy, and we have three locations in the sort of greater Puget Sound area. One is right in the heart of Seattle on Lake Union, which is an amazing location for us. One is uh, in a smaller community, Mercer Island, and another is in Gig Harbor, which is um, a little bit um, south of the the city. And movement systems physical therapy is an outpatient, primarily musculoskeletal, though we see some 
neurologic conditions as well. And we see everything from, you know, seven-year-olds to, you know, 97-year-olds or, or beyond. And our practice is that each of the doctors of physical therapy spend one-to-one time with the patients for 60-minute sessions typically. And we do not use assistive personnel. So our whole sort of emphasis is on the diagnosis of the movement patterns that are contributing to the underlying condition or injury state, or even in the post-operative state, you know, trying to really optimize their movement system. And um, we feel that that, you know, takes that, that doctor of physical therapy to go through that level of analysis and that level of education and teaching with our patients. So we don't see a tremendous amount of post-op. We tend to see people who are battling, you know, multiple regional chronic sort of conditions um, and have really not done well in, in other models and really need that level of specificity. And um, so we, we you know, also believe that our patients are never discharged, mm-hmm. that Thank our you. patients are, we are primary care for musculoskeletal and that we are their physical therapist and that when they have a problem complaint to call us right away and get in so that we can manage it quickly and get them on their way and back into their healthy lifestyle. So um, as far as, you know, as you all probably know, Seattle um, was the epicenter at one time in the country. We were the first diagnosis of COVID. However, our Governor Inslee acted swiftly and worked very closely with public health officials and with the frontline providers to be able to you know, develop really important strategies. We, we, ter- we started the stay home on March 25th and we have not lifted yet. And um, we were slated to lift on May 4th, but I think he's going to be extending it for at least another week. But he's, he calls it a dial that we, he's dialing things incrementally um, so that pe- people can get back to work on a very incremental basis. We've done a fantastic job and I, I'm, I'm on faculty at U- University of Washington, the other one um, <laughs> in Seattle. And um, what's, what's surprising is of all of the UW medical systems across the state, right now, as we speak, they're at released uh, last Friday, Um, There were 82 cases in all of the systems, which was amazing to hear. They had they had prepared for 900. They took it down to 700. The highest number of cases they had at any one time was 122. And we're now down to 82. So we're in our second week of regression, which is amazing. So I feel very happy to be in the state of Washington and how it's been handled here. As far as my practice goes, of course, we've been hit pretty hard, um, understandably so. We see a combination of telehealth and in-person visits. And we um, we actually are, because we're in this beautiful area, we actually take patients outside as well, which is another option for people. And um, we probably haven't really hit below 60% census. We're hovering between 60 to 50% census. So um, and we hope to to not drop below fifty percent. So that's where we are. Thank you, Carrie. 
Leslie, how are you? Um, and Carrie, I actually have a former patient of mine um, who is in the middle of chemotherapy for advanced breast cancer who lives in Seattle, who lives literally a mile. She lives in Kirkland, a mile from the nursing home epicenter. Um, oh. She was actually interviewed by Time Magazine um, mm-hmm. uh, a, a month or so back. So they're doing a fantastic job out there under some horrific conditions. Mm-hmm. So I am um, from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I work for Advocate Aurora Healthcare, uh, which is, I believe, the ninth largest health system um, in the country. Uh, we have about 70,000 employees. Um, I am the cancer rehabilitation coordinator for the Wisconsin side um, of our company um, in Aurora Physical Therapy. Um, so I am in the clinic 50% of the time, and 100% of my patients have some type of cancer. And then the other 50% of my job, um, I am um, running the cancer rehab service line um, for the entire system. And we have, just on the Wisconsin side, we have um, 16 hospitals and 18 um, cancer centers. Um, and so we have PTs, OTs, and speech pathologists in each of those centers, inpatient, outpatient, and home therapy um, that have some advanced training in um, cancer rehab. Um, so my job is then to, to keep everybody educated to make sure that, that our patients are being um, um, integrated, that the rehab is being integrated fully into cancer care, which means a lot of educating of nurse practitioners and physicians and surgeons and medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, um, and so forth, nurse, uh, nurse navigators, um, setting best practice, um, and, um, you know, making pathways and all that stuff. So I talk a lot um, and absolutely love it. Um, we are, um, from a um, state perspective, uh, we are kind of at hopefully getting towards the end of our, our apex of um, our COVID um, cases um, at this point. So we're kind of at the height of it right now. Um, from a system perspective, um, we have almost a thousand, um, um, almost, well, almost 700 inpatients right now, but between all of our hospitals, uh, and those numbers are, like I said, are, are fairly high at this point and hopefully coming down soon. Um, and then from a, um, practice standpoint, um, we are about 20, 20 to 30%, um, over the system, um, of our normal volume. Um, we have, um, a fantastic rehabilitation program, um, and we have specialists in spine and neuro and peds and pelvic floor and oncology and Parkinson's. And so depending on the service area, um, some of those have been impacted more than others. Um, so a lot of our orthotherapists that do post-operative stuff are kind of uh, twiddling their thumbs right now and helping out in other areas. Um, a lot of our PTs um, have um, been deployed to screening um, helping um, uh, with PPE protection, with people coming in and out of contamination zones. Um, so it's been a really um, huge team effort, um, which we're all very proud of. Um, so, yeah, we're running at about 20 to 30 percent of volume and hoping to slowly, again, use that dial terminology. Um, that We keep pushing the date back. Again, we're going to see more of our volume. Um, right now it's looking around May 18th. Um, but, again, it completely depends on um, this, the, the the patient service market where that particular clinic is and, and, um, and a bunch of other factors that I'm, I'm assuming we'll talk about. And Jonathan. Great. Thank you for having me. I'm the director of physical therapy and occupational therapy services at Boston children's hospital. We're a 404 bed acute care academic, um, freestanding children's hospital in the city. And we also have satellite locations. So we have on-site, at the hospital outpatient-based services, and then we have uh, 
several satellite locations where we treat physical and occupational therapy as well. Our patient population um, is, a, is certainly a little bit different. Um, you know, the oldest patient we typically see is around 35. So we enter into the adult world, but we consider that really old uh, in our population. Um, but we treat, you know, infants all the way up through. And so our patient population is uh, what you might consider as a traditional outpatient pediatric um, community-based services, as well as a lot of specialty services where our therapists are working alongside uh, physician specialists in certain particular areas in clinic visits um, and being able to deliver care there and make, help make decisions on surgical options and other things. Uh, we do have a fairly large international population as well. So about 25% of our patients on the outpatient side are international. And as you can imagine, a lot of them uh, left and went, uh, got repatriated back home. And so that was a fair amount of our volume that, um, that left in Massachusetts. Um, the 16th of March was our, our kind of starting date uh, for stopping elective surgeries. And so a lot of our post-op care uh, volume also slowed at that point, both on the inpatient side as well as on the outpatient side um, of service delivery. Um, and so we're, again, same, same as you, uh, Leslie, is we're, we're looking at the 18th right now as a getting back to whatever that new normal might look like in a several phased approach. Uh, but when we look at our, our service currently, um, we are down to seeing only urgent and time sensitive high priority patients in our outpatient centers. Uh, and only two of our four locations are open right now. We, we did fully close a few of our satellite locations, um, which then uh, we had to move several of our patients and if they needed face-to-face -face visits, get them uh, to a, an approximate location if we could. And we've also, uh, we weren't really set up in Massachusetts from a um, virtual visit or telehealth standpoint for physical and occupational therapy. But with the um, emergency uh, stay-at-home orders also came the ability to deliver some telehealth. And so we've stood that up rather quickly over the past several weeks and are currently running at about 20% of volume uh, in our outpatient services uh, and our inpatient volume as well as uh, not so much in OT, but in, in physical therapy has dropped uh, because of those post-op patients. Thank you so much, John, Leslie and Carrie. We already have questions coming through. I do want to remind everyone, please submit your questions via the chat and we will filter through them as efficiently as we can. And if you have questions that are more specific, you are welcome to email the practice department at practice-bept at apta.org. And so without a further ado, let's get started with some of the questions that are coming in. Shabna Tandon asked that she is a manual therapist and practicing in Maryland, and she wants to know how to safely practice during the pandemic situation. So maybe um, two of you can respond to what are some of the specific guidelines and practices that you've implemented that you either already had but are making sure you do or the new ones that you've had to implement since mm -hmm. COVID has started. Um. I, um, in general, the people that we are seeing now in the midst of, of um, the full-blown um, COVID, our criteria are for outpatient physical therapy patients is um, that if the patient cannot remain independent without our assistance, we will see them. If the patient's pain level 
um, is risk of either hospitalizing them or sending them to the emergency department. We will see them if they're a brand new ortho or a new surgical or a new neurodiagnosis, whether it's CBA or Parkinson's, um, or in my case, a cancer diagnosis, whether it's surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, we're going to see them at least to teach them, um, again, whether it's telephone, um, video visit, or in clinic, we will see them um, um, just to get them rolling. Now, from a manual therapy perspective, to, to go direct, directly to this question, is many of my patients that are, that are coming into the clinic um, because of pain, I'm doing manual therapy on um, so I make sure that first the patient goes through all the screening, appropriate screening, there's physically distance in the waiting room. And again, my cancer patients are already pros at all of this stuff. They know how to do this and they take it very seriously. Um, so that's not really an issue for them. Um, but, um, what we do is, um, you know, sterilize between, um, visits, the, 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 plinth, the, the, the laundry, um, I will um, have the patient wash their hands before they come in into my actual into the, the, the treatment area. I wash, I glove, um, I have uh, goggles on and a mask, a patient's wearing a mask. Um, and then I um, wash my hands and then I glove up and then I'm very comfortable in that scenario as long as I know my patient's not sick, um, doing manual therapy in, in that situation. Um, I, I would, I have very little to add. I think that that's, um, that's, that's pretty much the way that we're operating as well. I mean, we have, you know, we've taken away so many, um, of the areas that can be contaminated. We have, I mean, just for example, if patients are using a pen, we have our, we have our jar of new pens and our old pens. So they're only taking a new pen. They can actually take it home with them if they want it. Um, you know, but we, we have everything as much as possible that is, is touchless for the patients. We're not letting them use our credit card readers anymore that we're inputting their credit card information. Um, so there's really little um, touched surfaces with the exception of the, the treatment table itself. Um, patients, again, wash their hands before the treatment. We do as well. We, I don't glove up. Um, I feel that the washing of the hands and I, I like to have the tactile input from mm -hmm. my fingers. And that's yep, just I a personal concur, preference. Yeah. Completely concur. Um, and so with the patients, they're wearing a mask. We're wearing a mask. Um, you know, as was said, we make sure, first of all, that the patient does not have a fever and that they, that they are not feeling ill in any way, and nor does the provider of care. So we are not, you know, bringing anybody into the clinic that has any any symptoms whatsoever, but in the abundance of precaution, we're both wearing masks. Um, we have our N95s on order. We have not received them yet, mm -hmm. but all of our patients either come with a mask or we provide a cloth mask for them. And um, I also ask my patients that when I do move in closely to do the manual therapy, that at this moment, we're going to not talk. Um, obviously, if they have like they want me to stop doing whatever I'm doing because they're uncomfortable, they can say something. But otherwise, we're going to refrain from talking. Then I'm going to step back and we'll we'll talk through, you know, whatever we need to talk through. So at that moment, we, we're not holding our breath, but we're, we're really trying to, you know, refrain from, you know, having a big conversation at that time. So those would be the only other things um, that I would add. Obviously, disinfecting all surfaces um, goes without saying. Um can't think of anything in addition, but we've been very successful. I would say the only other thing in terms of the screening of which patients are seen in person, I think that there are also the patients that, you know, without that manual treatment, their condition will get worse. Mm -hmm. And 
that is one more risk benefit analysis that the physical therapist has to go through with that patient that if they will continue to get worse, they're not moving as much. Now they're risking comorbidity, you know, for a different reason. They're risking their health for different reasons because they're not able to be as physically active. And in that situation, I feel that that if they cannot get through it with exercise alone or through a telehealth visit, then that would warrant an in-person visit. Thank you. John, did you want to add anything before I go to the next question? Yeah, the only other thing that we're doing is as an institution, we are screening all visitors as they enter every location. And so they are being asked health screening questions. Um, And if they do have any positive symptoms are being referred for testing. Uh, But every patient over the age of two per CDC guidelines are wearing a mask or being at least asked to wear a mask. Uh, And all employees are wearing a mask as well. So, John, you said they're being referred uh, for testing. Would that be on site or would they be sent somewhere else? So a lot of our clinics, yeah, a lot of our clinics have on site. We're starting on site testing now um, or they're being referred to um, a clinic that has that ability to swab and test. And we have a lot of our testing is now done in-house at Boston Children's. And so um, we're getting results back um, through our own labs. And for the three of you, are any of you hearing or doing um, a physical therapist doing any of the testing or just screening? Screening. Just screening. Thank you. So the next question looks like it's addressed to APTA as far as is there any news on negotiations with CMS (laughs) to approve PTs for telehealth in the facility outpatient centers? I guarantee that you will know the moment after I do because we are sitting like waiting ducks for that moment. Um, There is not a new uh, um, uh, expressed approval, but we have definitely put in for that um, as an association, as well as had members fill out the templates and write to their congressional congressional leaders as well as the MSO. We're hopeful that that will be part of the next package that's put out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amara Jose Mendoza um, said to the Puget um, sound therapists, when are you slated to go back and how will you work with your patients that have multiple variables affecting them and how will you get them back in as they are chronic? Um, they, he stated that they've been working mostly with patients who are more acute, um, but a lot of the crisis affected um, your region. So have you closed or stayed open the whole time? So, Yeah, it's a good question. No, we have stayed open the whole time. That was, um, that was not an easy choice <laughs> to make um, early on, you know, as you know, we all felt like, you know, the fire hose was at our face and we had to make, you know, decisions. And, even though our clinics stayed open, there were a few physical therapists within our practice that chose to not come in for in-person visits. Um, so we have stayed open. We have been seeing patients that are acute and chronic. Obviously, our patients at the highest level of risk, we have um, kept as much as possible in telehealth. Um, we have had a few in-home visits um, that we've provided to patients let's say they just timed it just right and they had their total hip replacement mm-hmm. right when this all hit. 
and the telehealth's just not cutting it, and but they don't feel comfortable coming into the clinic. So we've actually had some patients, some therapists do in-home visits with the proper PPE and disinfecting and, and so forth. Um, in, in the sense of what we're, there, there really isn't anything that we're gonna be doing differently. We will probably be more strict on temperature taking um, and more strict on screening of patients as they um, enter the clinic. We will be kind of staggering our shifts so that we don't have as many people, even though we are pretty low census because of our one-to-one -one, um, approach, we're still gonna stagger our schedules so that we even have that much more physical distancing. I'll say one more thing for me, I have um, a few patients that are high risk that really needed the in-person. So I have come in on a Saturday to see them when it's just just the two of us in the clinic by ourselves um, so that they felt sort of even more safe, that extra level of safety um, that was just the two of us in the clinic. And, and I've, we've been able to do that for some of our patients. Um, just to piggyback on the safety piece, um, I, you know, it can be very intimidating to come into a hospital. I'm sure um, um, John can agree with that for patients because there's the white buildings, there's everybody in scary stuff and the screening questions. And, um, but honestly, um, patients, I will tell, I will call them on the phone beforehand. They're most likely safer or less risk in our clinic than they are at our hospital than they are at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And once they frame it in context, they're like, oh yeah, you're probably right. Mm -hmm. So. But it is, it's, it can be intimidating, uh, you know, it, you know, versus an outpatient, small outpatient center versus this massive hospital. Um, it can be intimidating patients the first time they come in. But we, we walk through it. And again, the risk is, is quite low compared to something out in, in the general public. Mm -hmm. So I want to follow up with um, this question. And John, I want to make sure you answer this too, since you work with the pediatric population and have minors. One, how have you stayed healthy? as clinicians, what measures are you taking for yourselves? And two, um, how are you handling patients who have to come in, or at least to the session, with a, uh, an advocate or some other member of their family or friends? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I'll, I'll hit number two first and say that, um, you know, as an organization, uh, we've developed a visitor policy and the visitor policy is both for our inpatient and our outpatient uh, services. And so we allow the patient with two adult caregivers to be able to, to be present during a session. Um, we're asking for nobody un under the age of 18, so no siblings or cousins or, or friends coming with them to their sessions. Uh, and so we've, we've had a lot of success with that and where we found it um, you know, where we found places that we need to make exception, we take it on an individual basis. Um, so that, that policy has, has been helpful. I know there's some other institutions that have a no visitor policy or, or, uh, but really in the essence of family centered care and, and pediatrics specifically, um, we've maintained that to adult visitor policy and it's worked out pretty well. In terms of keeping safe and healthy, I think, um, you know, there's there's a bit of self-care, I think, that we've been trying to encourage our therapists to take. Um, you know, it, it's a lot more work when you're thinking all day long about gowning and gloving and masking and, you know, did I disinfect everything? It's, it's just a lot more cognitive memory that's going on all the time. And so we are making sure that we hold 
uh, open huddles every day with our staff for open communication. Ask every any question you'd like. We'll, we'll work to get an answer together. Um, we've had great support from our leadership where they've put in place some other um, you know, emotional health supports through our HR department and other places where um, therapists can access free um, to make sure that they're taking care of themselves. And then again, it's it's hand hygiene and it's cross-checking and making sure your 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 peer that's sitting next to you is following the, the same standards that you are and mm-hmm. and just saying you know asking how they're doing and you know making making sure that everybody's following those same standards leslie um yeah i i would um echo what, what john has said i think um extraordinary times um requires extraordinary care and extraordinary caregivers um, and it is, it, you know, again, I, you can see people, uh, PTs that work under leadership that is not particularly brilliant <laughs> and how they struggle. And then having, I'm in a situation where our leadership is just fantastic. Um, so even though it is difficult and it is completely exhausting, um, especially the first couple of weeks, the, the amount of learning um, and, and things would change from, you know, every four hours that what you knew was now not even relevant anymore. Um, so even though you're, 50% less busy, you come home just completely exhausted. Um, so I think mitigating burnout is really important. Um, so when you're blessed with leadership or colleagues that can can check in on you or um, support you with with um, um, you know human resources and and, and free resources and um, you know our our system has um, um, you know giving hazard pay. Um, to physicians and nurses and even PTs, OTs on, that are literally in the front line uh, working with COVID patients. Um, and, um, you know, just, just to feel supported is so important. Um, and I think you don't necessarily need a leader to do that. Um, but just checking in on each other and making sure that we smile every once in a while and um, keeping physically active. Again, it is so hard to, to not, when none of us are moving as much as we used to. Um, and, um, you know, again, it's it's all about taking care of each other and communicating and, and um, knowing this is going to be a long grind and persistence. Strength, I, always, I, I work with cancer survivor triathletes, and I say strength and um, speed will not get you to the finish line. Persistence will get you to the finish line, and that's kind of the, what I keep preaching to, to my colleagues and, and my patients because this is going to be a long grind. Um, so we have to take care of ourselves. Self-care is really important. Mm-hmm. Carrie, did you want to add anything? Um, yeah, you know, I, I heard this great quote at the beginning of all this, and it, it was, um, you know, nobody ever advises sprinting the first mile of a marathon, <laughs> and that's what we were asked to do. And so that those first, particularly a couple of weeks, was a, a huge sprint, and that was yeah. long, long, long days, you know, for, you know, I as the owner of the company, it was long days to make sure that we had all of the policies in place. Um you know, to keep our staff and our patients safe, everything communicated, all the messaging was out there. You know, what was going to take us, you know, a half a year, we set up our telehealth in one week's time. And, um, you know, we got our telehealth up and running even before the stay home mandate was put in place. And that was sort of transformative for us. And that was a, a lot of work. That was that sprint. But things continue to change. And so we have to stay just, you know, on top of it and ahead of the curve. But I would say the only thing I would add, aside from obviously our own self-care and our, our you know, using our, 
our relationships in, with our colleagues and our family and our friends to help keep us supported um, is also our patients. Um, I was joking the other day that, um, and please don't take this the wrong way, but the COVID-19 could also be the 19 pounds that we're all going to gain yes, from all yes, of the treats yes. that our patients keep bringing to us, the donuts and the cookies, because they're yeah. all baking, could be stress baking, <laughs> and they don't want to eat it, so they bring it into us. And so we're like, we just feel this love from our patients constantly. And I think that that keeps us going, um, whether you're in a telehealth visit or you're in you know, an in-person visit, the patients are so grateful that we are still mm -hmm. here for them, from them. And that, that I think keeps us going. Thank you. I have two questions. The first of which I'm going to um, take from Jen Corbill, which will be for you, John, and the second of which will be for Leslie and Carrie. And the first is um, what specific precautions are you taking in the pediatric outpatient clinics would have you put in place? And the second question would be um, with respect to your therapist on staff, how are you deciding who and when people should um, come into work? And are they being allowed to self-select as far as determining whether or not they feel comfortable coming into work and seeing patients? John, I'll start with you. Yeah, so the first one is, you know, again, it's communication from our leadership and taking a, a universal stand on a masking policy for all employees, as well as the wellness check that we talked about, that screening check that when they come into work physically. Um, and then just diligent hand washing and making sure we have access to hand sanitizer uh, throughout the clinics. From a sanitation of, of toys or therapy tools and things of that nature, um, you know, it's really single, we, we've, we moved a lot of single patient use and then it's out of service until it's disinfected. Um, that's for all equipment um, more diligently than we ever have before. Um, so as, as, um, as Leslie was saying, I think we might have the cleanest clinic we've ever had, um, you know, as we go through and disinfect things on such a regular basis. Um, so, so that's, I think, the, the first piece. Um, the, the second with regards to, you'll have to remind me, I apologize. Oh, okay. I think you're on mute, sorry. Thanks, John. Yes, the first one was for you and then the second one was for Leslie and Carrie, so you're good. Oh, perfect. All right. So staff and determination of who can come and can they self-select out or in? Yeah, our approach was, uh, that it, all of our practitioners could make their own choices um, as to what they felt comfortable with. So we've had a huge variation in terms of, you know, some therapists are fully comfortable with seeing patients in person and others, you know, really wanted to follow the stay home orders and stay home and provide only telehealth services. And so we have really allowed each practitioner to make that decision autonomously and supported them in those decisions. And that each practitioner is also making the decision with their patient, you know, where the best uh, delivery of care is. Is it in-person telehealth or weighted out? And if they aren't providing in-person visits, then they will have them work with a person who is. And um, so Therefore, everybody's census is a little bit lower. So we didn't say, okay, these three people are going to be doing inpatient or, you know, in-person visits. And these are going to do telehealth. We let everybody do 
keep manage their caseload because that is their caseload. They are mm -hmm. those individuals' physical therapists. So we allowed everybody to continue to treat their patients as best um, that they, they could given the circumstances. So everybody is pretty much on partial unemployment. Um, they're, they're getting gap pay um, that helped to shore up the difference between what they would be making if they were working full census and what their, um, you know, the, the other time that the unemployment is helping to support them. And um, I've personally not gotten the PPP loan yet. Keep waiting every day, keep looking, but I have not gotten it yet. So we're relying on, you know, sort of partial unemployment um, to keep people economically whole. So that's me. Um, I work, again, uh, kind of the opposite extreme of, of um, Carrie, where we, I work for a very, very, again, the ninth largest health system in the country, so a very healthy, um, robust system. So we have been able to continue to pay people um, full salary, um, whether they're able to see a full caseload or not. Um, so we're very blessed there. Um, so I think at the beginning, it was a little um, rattling for everybody, including a lot of the therapists. Um, and what am I going to do? What are they going to make me do? Um, but it really has fallen out to, um, again, depending on what kind of clinic you work in, whether it's in an urban inner city or, um, you know, high, high surgical volume, whether you're in a small community um, outpatient center, um, it's been impacted differently. Um, but in general, we're, we're taking the approach of here's the stuff that needs to get done. Um, who, who can do, I mean, in general, PTs want to work, we want to do, we want to help. Um, so we've kind of taken the approach of here's, here's what needs to get done. Um, and like uh, Carrie said, you have to take care of your caseload. Um, so, um, you know, look at all your patients or so our, our receptionists were fantastic at helping us. Here's your caseload. Here's the phone numbers. Check in with everybody. What do they, what do they need now? What can we, what can we do later? Who's appropriate for video visit? Um, who's appropriate for telehealth? Um, and then saying, okay, we, these are the screening needs for our hospital. Um, this is the screening needs for our hospice. Um, these are, these are the things that we as a cumulative company need. Um, and some people say, you know what, I've got a parent at home with Alzheimer's. I can't do that. Or my kids are at home now. I can't. Um, and other people say, you know what, I don't have kids at home and I'm good. So let me do this. And, and why don't you do that? So, um, I think it just goes to the, the show the good nature of um, us as a, as a professional community um, to help out where we can and do what we can um, and not get stressed out um, and uh, finding ways to get, get everything need to get done that needs to get done. Great. Thank you. So it looks like we have a lot of questions to move through. And so I'll ask each of you to keep your responses to a minute or two so that we can get to as many as possible there. Super excited to have your input. I will say that there's are multiple questions that are here about telehealth specifically, and that we have a ton of information on that on our website. So if it's specific to your clinic and not general to telehealth, one, you have the telehealth page at APTA, but you also can um, email the advocacy at APTA.org for some of those questions as well. Um, let's move into some of your questions now. So there did ask if the APTA has specific public guidelines as opposed to just um, referring to the CDC guidelines and whether or not we have outpatient recommendations and guidelines. There are 
both um, in on the APTA website, and you could probably access those through the practice page and or the frequently asked questions. So if you start at the COVID-19 um, or coronavirus page of APTA, and then you'll now see guidelines that are specific to outpatients. Um, this one says, what is happening with pediatric outpatient? My clients will not be able to wear a mask. Are therapists wearing gloves with the children? That would be for you, Don. Yeah, so um, we are, anybody over two, we're offering a mask, certainly with certain populations with behavioral health issues, um, or there may be just a refusal to wear a mask. And as a pediatric facility and a, and a family-centered care facility, we are not requiring the patient to come in with a mask if they're refusing to wear it. We will ask the caregivers, you know, the parents, to, to please wear the mask as a visitor to our hospital. Um, but the therapists are also wearing masks. Um, at this point in time, um, the glove and I'll even say gown and glove questioning um, does come up a lot. There is, no, um, there is no hard and fast rule different than any other practice that you're providing. So we're leaving it up to the clinicians as part of their normal practice, as long as they're using hand washing. We are starting to look at making sure there's added uh, places for the kids to access hand washing as well before and after the treatment, similar to what Leslie was saying or uh, Carrie, in terms of patients coming in and leaving, we want to make sure we're fostering that good hand hygiene of our kids as well when it's appropriate, um, or at least offering um, hand sanitizer to the to the caregiver to use with the children on the way out. Thank you. So any of you can answer the next one. One, are any of you wearing any um, type of gowns for close touch to protect from the patient to patient? And secondarily, if you have someone who needs to be face down in a pillow for a while in treatment, are you still having the mask? I can answer the second one. When, um, when we have our patients face down, we will cover the, the whole area on the table with a pillow slip and make a little hole so they can breathe. And at that moment, we tell them that they do not need to have their mask on because we want them to be comfortable I don't want them to feel like they can't breathe because then they're tensing and not comfortable and that's not gonna bode well. And of course that area, even with the pillow slip is heavily disinfected after that treatment. Um, and so that's, we, we do not have them have their mask and be face down at the same time. And I'm not wearing a gown, like a mm -hmm. gown per se, um, but I put a scrub jacket on over whatever I'm wearing that day and it's typically scrubs. Um, in this scenario. Um, and I just leave it in, I practice in one treatment booth, um, so I don't have to go out and I just leave, I take that on and off with each patient. Um, and then, um, so when I leave the treatment booth, I'm not exposed to whatever may have been on that gown. Um, and then when I get home, like most people, I um, take my clothing off in the garage and, and I've learned not to have new clothes in the garage. I made that mistake the very first day, but not the second day. <laughs> uh, and, um, um, and everything just goes right into the washing machine. So, um, uh, to, to, again, just to, to kind of mitigate any cross-contamination of, of, you know, again, out of an abundance of, of precaution. Thank you. So the next question I'm going to pull from McBrenz is not, that was from McBrenz, I'm sorry, from Samantha, is 
do you have specific health screening protocol before a patient comes into the clinic each time? You all have spoken to that you do screening. So maybe if you can give um, the details of that screen or the screening questions that you're using. So I can just speak that, you know, ours are symptom-based. So they're going through the CDC symptoms of uh, a patient who may present with a positive screen would be somebody who presents with those those symptoms. Um, it's it's not um, we're and we're asking for those who are sick, including employees. Uh, there have been some employees who have come uh, more early on and and arrived and then said yes to one of those symptoms and realized you know maybe I shouldn't be at work today uh, and needed to go back home. And so um, we are. It's more symptom checking when they're coming in. We're not yet doing temperature screens, which I know is, is pr present at some clinics around the country. We are, doing, there, Carrie? Uh, we are doing temperature screening. Um, and I haven't, I actually haven't been a screener in a couple, a couple weeks, but uh, the questions are, um, do you currently have, or have in the last um, seven days, have you had um, coughing or sneezing? Um, have you been around anybody known to have coronavirus or COVID-19 in the last week? Um, I don't think they're asking, have you been out of the country in the last 14 days? Cause that's kind of now irrelevant. Um, and um, and have you had a fever in the last week? And then we're doing the temperature screening, I think, are the, the, the questions that are being asked now for incoming patients into our physical building spaces. Right. I mean, the, the only thing I, I would add is the the shortness of breath that's um, not attributed to, you know, normal exertion um, mm -hmm. is is one of the other symptoms. And for us, we we are not mandatory taking temperatures of our patients, but if we ask them, um, do you know if you have a fever? And they're like, I don't know, then we'll use the infrared thermometer to check. And um, you know, so we have it there available, but we're not mandatory at this moment asking each patient to be to have a temperature check. But no coughing, sneezing is not a symptom of COVID, but of course we don't want people actively sneezing in the clinic um, and you know, feeling ill for any reason. On the provider side, we do ask that our providers take their temperature every morning. Right now we're not logging that, but we ask them to just take that pause, take your temperature, just do a little check. Just We tend to as providers um, kind of, you know, not pay as much attention to our own health. We're paying attention to everybody else's. So just take that moment to pause, make sure you are fever free before you come into work. So I have a couple of pediatric questions for you, John, from Catherine and Stacy. And one, are you servicing children under two years of age? And two, um, what is happening with the pediatrics outpatient as far as are the therapists wearing gloves? So again, the therapist, it's really based on the procedure for, for glove wear. And, but yes, we are seeing patients under two. Uh, examples are you know, children with, with a, an early diagnosis, a young diagnosis of torticollis. We want to get in, do the evaluation, make sure they have a plan of care that they can then carry out virtually would be an example of that. Do you find that it's unsafe uh, um, for the therapist or the patient population if the child cannot wear a mask? No, um, I think we're still screening um, coming into the facility. So we're pretty sure that we're catching most people with symptoms at the door. Um, and, and we are also, um, we have an automated uh, system that reminds them of appointments. And in there, they're also being asked about their symptoms so they can cancel the day ahead even um, if they feel like they've been having symptoms. So there's a lot of checks and balances in place. 
Um, Carrie, I think you mentioned telehealth and Leslie, you may have also. Jonathan had a question um, and thanked you for the discussion. He's a PTA and a third year DPT student. Um, in regards to telehealth, how do you protect yourself if the patient falls at home? And mostly all um, outpatients, the screen is jumping around, um, have heavy, uh, are really heavy on manual um, therapy, but in telehealth, um, do you find it beneficial for reaching the manual therapy goals? Well, no, you, <laughs> you can't provide manual therapy through telehealth, um, but it has been an actual, you know, really great learning experience for PTs and patients alike. Some of the some of the silver linings is that you get to actually see the patient in their home environment. So when you're teaching them an exercise in the clinic and you expect them to do it at home, you really don't know how they're setting it up. So when you see their actual setup at home, you're like, oh no no no, that's not going to work. Or you're like, wow, that's brilliant that you figured it out to do it that way. And so you get to actually really work through, you know, how they're doing these things in their own home environment. The other piece is that you have to rely a lot more on your, your verbal cueing and a lot more sensory motor um, perception on the patient's side because you are using your powers of observation as the PT to observe their postural patterns or their movement patterns and providing them with cueing to feel what it is you want them to feel, which is actually, it actually is enlightening to the patient because when you're in there with your hands all over them, they that's a very different type of cueing than for you to verbally cueing them and have to internalize that sensory motor changes. So for a lot of the manual therapists, they find that this has actually been um, using movement and exercise and positioning has actually really opened up a lot for them through the use of telehealth. As far as preventing a patient from falling, obviously you'll take you, all the precautions that you can by not asking them to do things that would put them at fall risk because you're not there to be able to support them. So it's really using your clinical judgment to make sure that you're not asking them to do something that would put them at risk for falling. And the only thing I would have to add is, is just to make sure um, that if you're going to be assessing some type of balance or gait, that just make sure that there is another person in the house or right nearby that can that can say he can't do that or just so you have it <laughs> yeah. hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, how are Jenna asked? How are you managing involvement of caregivers in the in-person visits in the pediatric se se setting? Excuse me. Um, are they still participating in sessions or are you just working with the child to further minimize contact? We are still having the, the families participate in sessions. And I think it's ex especially important because they're the ones now going home uh, and carry, helping carry over those home exercise programs, especially if we're supplementing our face-to-face -face visits with our virtual visits. And so we find using that time for not only direct one-on-one -on -one intervention, but also caregiver education is extremely important at this time, where we may have recommended at one point a post-op patient coming in three or four times a week. They might be coming in once or twice and then being seen virtually the other once or twice a week. And so by having the caregivers there to assist in the sessions gives them a better idea of what we're expecting when they do their virtual visits. 
Thank you. And Cindy and Rebecca, your questions regarding the billings and the telehealth and um, insurance covering home therapies, I'd encourage you to send that question to the advocacy at agca.org and we can get you taken care of right away. Okay. <clears throat> so, and as well as Carrie, I'm going through the questions. Uh, for the future, if you are treating a patient with TMJ problems and usually perform manual therapy, joint molds or soft tissue um, mobilization in the mouth, would the PT use a mask and shield or just a mask? Any suggestions? Right, I mean, it's still not an aerosolized procedure, um, but you are in their airway. And I think in that situation, an N95 mask would be more appropriate than just a procedural mask. And, um, you know, as Leslie said, you know, perhaps goggles, um, we don't have the full screen masks in an outpatient setting, but if an N95 and goggles would probably provide enough precautionary measures at that point when you're working in someone's mouth and airway. That speaks to Aaron's question and any of you can add if you have something, which was, do you as outpatient PTs believe that an N95 mask will be your standard or um, she believes that her clinic has surgical masks, but not N95s? I would love the N95 to be the, the standard because that is truly the only way to protect you from giving it to somebody else or from getting it yourself. But they, I don't, most play, we, they're, they're just not accessible. And if they are, they're going to rightfully going to the, to the PTs, OTs and, and speech pathologists and nurses and physicians and everybody on the front line in the COVID rooms. So I would love it to um, if it was available, but it's just not at this point. I do think that they're, be, they're becoming more available. We do have ours on order. We should probably be getting them in the next week, but they won't. It's not like you're going to be able to drop it in the trash at the end of the day. Right. It's going to be reused yeah. and we're going to have to have proper, um, you know, cleaning procedures, donning and doffing procedures are super important as well to improve the effectiveness. But I do believe that it probably, again, depends on your setting. I mean, if you can keep physical distancing um, most of the time, then a procedural mask would be appropriate. But if you are in within that six foot um, range of a patient, then I believe that the N95 should be the standard. Thank you. Um, can any of you speak to postpartum for women and infant or toddler visits? Are we feeling it's more or less of an exposure risk to be in people's homes or in a clinic? That's from Kelsey. Hmm. I mean, we, we can control our environment in the clinic. We, I have um, two, three pelvic health therapists that are seeing, actually, that's one of the populations that really the census remained very high. Um, those people um, felt that it was critically important for them to continue to be seen and they're seen in clinic and we can control our environment. We know how clean and disinfected everything is. And so that would be our preference. However, for whatever reason, the patient needs to be seen in home. We would also uh, certainly you know, provide that um, to that patient. Thank you. Um, Victoria Jaramillo um, asked, they uh, say the virus can be asymptomatic. How can we be sure patients are COVID-19 free? 
Yeah, I think that's just one that's going to be one of the uncertainties as we move forward. And I think, you know, as an organization and as a state, and I'm sure every state is going to watch and see as we re-enter into the communities and get back to life as we know it, are we going to see a second spike? Are we going to look for increases in admissions and COVID positive? And, you know, that's all going to be kind of the uncertainty of what we have to keep an eye out for. Right. Um, Beck, uh, did somebody want to add? I was just going to say that, you know, if you if you remember back to the very beginning of this, before we knew that there was asymptomatic transmission and we were just really doing the screenings, like if you have a fever, cough, shortness of breath, you know, please don't come to your visit. Now we've got all of these additional measures in place, you know, with the universal masking. Hopefully, again, providers will be in N95 masks um, in the not so distant future as a standard. So I think that, again, there is no such thing as zero risk. And for that patient to not receive their care in physical therapy might put them at higher risk for other health um, issues than to come in with a tiny, teeny, tiny risk that somehow there will be transmission. So it's, again, that risk-benefit analysis that you have to provide on a case-by-case basis. So we are entering the last three minutes uh, or so of our talk. This has been uh Fantastic uh, discussion. And I'm going to read one more question and then I'll ask each of you to give some closing um, recommendations. Becky Barnell Green Guerin asked, um, What are you using to determine risk level for patients to recommend telehealth versus in person visits? Are you using an algorithm? Not me. We aren't. Um, I don't think. I think that, again, it's really a decision between the therapist and the patient together um, and really kind of, again, using your professional clinical decision-making process and determining what is the what is the best course of action for this particular person at this particular moment in time. Because it could change next week. Right. Our key points are if... Again, if you're going to lose your independence, if you are in fear of, if you're going to end up in the emergency department or being hospitalized, um, or your pain is out of control, um, or there's going to be permanent disability because you're not getting treated, those are obvious people that we want in the clinic right now. So that's kind of the SBAR that we're using to get people in right now versus video visit. So Dr. Leslie, uh, there's a question specific to this is uh, Considering the deconditioning low immunity, um, would you prefer a telehealth visit over in-person visit? I mean, I think it depends on where that patient falls um, on that. I mean, if they are in an emergency situation, if they're immune suppressed, we just take extra extra visits or extra precautions and get them in if they need to. Um, but a lot of exercise and therapeutic exercise can be done um, over a video visit or even over the telephone. Um, and again, what's nice is I am in a hosp- an outpatient hospital PT department that's associated with a cancer center. So if there, I, I, we try to combine our visits, so it's only one exposure to the hospital and minimizes PPE for the patient and for us. We have that advantage. Um, so if they're there, I'm saying hightail it down the hallway and, and come see me as well. All right. So it looks like we have about 30 seconds each for you to give your nuggets or jewels that you would recommend for people who are going to already practicing in their outpatient settings. Let's start with you, John, and Carrie, and then go to Leslie. Sure. I guess a couple of things I would say with regards to masking is that um, patients can no longer see our facial expressions. And so we instill Mm -hmm. a lot of confidence in our patients through our affect. And so be aware of that and make sure you're you're teeing up your patients for success. 
I think also if those of you have, that have more pediatric specific questions, if you go to the pediatric APTA website, they do have a COVID-19 discussion board. And so a lot of questions and the answers specific to pediatrics can be posted there and you'll get responses pretty quickly. Um, and then I guess think the last nugget is just know that, you know, we are resilient and this is a dynamic process. And so as we all get back to whatever our new normal is, um, you know, things may work and things may not, and that's okay. Um, but we will certainly come out on the other end uh, doing some new things in our clinical practice that maybe we never did before. Okay. Um, I'd actually like to, to um, put a little nod to the, to the future because there's going to be a lot to come as a result of COVID-19 and we need to be prepared as physical therapists, you know, we, we need to understand that, that our role is going to become even greater as we manage this sort of the post-intensive care syndrome, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the ARDS, um, anything that's related to deconditioning from the quarantine, people's overzealous attempts to be healthy, which increases <laughs> their injuries, um, the increase in chronic pain from people who have had long periods without their physical therapy, maybe increased fall risk for the, the elderly that have been self-quarantined. So we need to be there to provide the care to get our citizens back to a healthy physical lifestyle and back to self-efficacy and their well-being. So but we are going to be extremely important um, mm -hmm. in, in, in the, the next phase as people re-enter. And I, I, I want, you know, I'm like a zealot when it comes to physical therapists. So I'm yeah. so <laughs> proud of our profession and yes. how we've navigated this and how we will continue to move forward into the future. And when it comes to um, clinics, depending on uh, deciding on when to open or when to more expand, um, I think, again, it's dependent on your uh, patient service market and the, your current community spread specific to your location. Um, and it needs, our, our decisions need to be data-driven, um, and we need to make, put um, patient and community on our own protection over profit. Um, and communication is the key, um, and not only between us, but also with our uh, referral providers um, to let them know that we are here, what we're doing. Um, so to re restart those relationships, um, and, um, and communication is key. It's extraordinary times, but we provide extraordinary care. This has been a riveting discussion and clearly we did not probably get to half of the questions because there are so many. And as you noted, physical therapists and physical therapist assistants do want to help and do want to be part of mitigating COVID, but also taking care of our patients as we always have and then knowing that that might look different going forward. So I appreciate each and every one of your contributions to the discussion and your expertise. I wish you all well and continued health and strength as you continue to serve those of them around you. Thank you all for joining us today and have a great <laughs> rest of your week. Thanks, Thank everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to evolve. APTA set up a webpage to keep you informed at www.apta.org slash coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together.